Welcome to another ABC Radio National podcast. For more information, go to abc.net.au slash rn. You're on ABC Radio National. I'm Robin Williams, and I'm here to introduce the pinnacle of the Big Ideas Year, the annual Boyer Lectures. This year, our lecturer promises to bring us to our senses. The 48th Boyer Lecturer is Professor Graham Clark. You'll probably know him as the Bionic Ear Man. Professor Clark led the development of the world's first cochlear implant. Its benefits to the deaf have been profound. In fact, it's the first major advance in helping deaf children communicate since the advent of sign language. That's about 200 years between drinks. Professor Clark is founder and director of the Bionic Ear Institute and professor at the University of Wollongong. He has won many awards, including being named Australian Father of the Year in 2004, mainly for the benefits of his work on the lives of young children. Over the next six weeks, Professor Clark will focus on our senses and how bionics is the way of the future. He'll discuss how we perceive the world, the impact of losing a sense, the development of the bionic ear, and future developments like the bionic eye and the bionic spinal cord. Steve Austin is truly upon us. Let's join Professor Graham Clark, AC, for the first of his 2007 Boyer Lectures. In restoring the senses, I want to highlight the importance of our senses and how they can be restored with bionics. In the course of this lecture, I hope you will appreciate the amazing way our senses function. Then in the second lecture, discover how we are affected by the loss of any one of these senses, as they are the only way we experience the world around us. In the third lecture, I will explain how I set out to restore the sense of hearing. In the fourth lecture, we will learn how the bionic ear became a reality for those severely and profoundly deaf people who had hearing before going deaf. In the fifth lecture, we will discover that children born deaf can use a bionic ear to develop normal spoken language. Finally, in the sixth lecture, we will learn how bionic ear research has created a new field of medical bionics which I hope will eventually lead to a bionic eye for blindness and a bionic spinal cord and bionic nerve repair to help restore the senses of touch and movement. In our bodies, we have special cells that allow us to hear, see, touch, taste, smell and sense body position and movement. Each sense helps us experience the world in different ways. Helen Keller, who was blind and deaf at a very young age, said, Blindness cuts you off from things and deafness from people. For every person, the relative importance of the senses varies. As communication was so important to Helen Keller, she found deafness a greater handicap than blindness. All our sense organs convert sound, vision, touch, smell, taste, position and movement into electrical signals. And these signals produce coded messages that pass along nerve pathways to the brain. In the brain, for reasons that we don't fully understand, the electrical codes result in conscious experiences. 
while you are listening to me during this broadcast, there are patterns of electrical activity in the auditory pathways of your brain, and these auditory experiences are unique to you, and not simply like a series of electrical pulses. There is, however, a relationship between how your brain functions and the nature of your conscious experience. The brain is a remarkable structure for processing sensory information. It has been calculated that there are some 100,000 million nerve cells in the adult human brain, roughly the same as the number of stars in the Milky Way. Each brain cell is connected to between 10 and 10,000 other brain cells. So therefore, there are about 100 million million connections in the brain. It has also been estimated that the number of possible activation states of the brain is greater than the number of atoms in the universe. So there is an amazing number of possibilities in the brain for sensing and processing information. Our conscious experiences depend not only on the vast network of brain cells and their connections, but also on their interaction with the complex chemistry of the cell. This is especially important for the preservation of memories. In fact, the human brain is possibly the most complex structure in the universe. That is probably why Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, says in his book, The Astonishing Hypothesis, that the great challenge for science in the 21st century is not to be found in quantum mechanics, nor in molecular biology, but in understanding what it is that develops in the brain of a human embryo that gives rise to consciousness. It has been argued, on the other hand, that our conscious experiences are nothing more than electrical events in the brain. Our brain has been likened to a supercomputer, where all thoughts are ultimately the result of these electrical events. In this scenario, we would have no free will, as every response of our senses would be determined for us by the pattern of electrical activity. This view that our conscious experiences can be understood simply as the brain functioning in a mechanistic way like a computer has a number of flaws. Firstly, the responses of the brain are different from those of computers as we know them. In the brain, information passes from one cell to the next, accompanied by apparently random activity. Just how this random activity affects perception is not clear. The brain has an amazing capacity to process information in parallel, a function not well seen in present computers. A mother trying to get her three children to school is a good example, as she is managing different requests almost simultaneously. Further, it has been argued by the late physicist Donald Mackay, on logical grounds, that even if we knew all the neural events and their external causation, we could still not predict what decision a person would make. We are not just automatons. Second, through our consciousness we can reflect internally 
on the sensory experiences we've had, and there is continuity from one day to the next. We wake up and realise we're in the same bedroom we were in before we went to sleep, and we remember we are the same person. All our stored memories make us who we are, and all our internal conscious experiences can be made known to others through a shared language. Finally, our feelings, those of love, hate, pride and loyalty, for example, cannot easily be explained as simply the workings of electrical current and chemistry in the brain. In fact, it is impossible to prove they are merely electrical currents. When one considers the complexity of the brain and its relation to consciousness, we must surely stand in awe. Indeed, Sir John Eccles, a distinguished Australian neuroscientist who received the Nobel Prize in 1963 for his research in that field, said in his 1965 Boyer Lecture series, I wish to do all I can to restore to mankind the sense of wonder and mystery that arises from the attempt to face up to the reality of our very existence as conscious beings. So what is it that brings unity to all the sensory experiences? Eccles saw it as a mystery how so many diverse events in the brain are united in the conscious experience of the individual. Eccles came to the conclusion that we have a soul, which is especially created by God, and thus there is the possibility of an afterlife. On the other hand, Donald Mackay, a Christian as well as physicist and brain scientist, differed not only from John Eccles but also from Karl Popper, a leading philosopher of science. Mackay considered that brain and soul together form a unity, that our conscious thinking is complementary and linked to our cerebral processes. Therefore, we have a realistic basis for studying the brain as a machine, but without rejecting the moral and spiritual significance of human nature. Furthermore, Sir John Polkinghorne, a Fellow of the Royal Society and former Professor of Mathematical Physics at Cambridge University, suggests that as this world is special and finely tuned for life, then we should consider it the creation of a Creator that wills that it should be so. So could the physical universe, which physicists now show had only the remotest chance of producing carbon-based life, have evolved into human consciousness by mindless chance? I think not. The human brain is so sophisticated a mechanism that scientists have still not been able to design engineering systems that can match its crucial functions. For me, that means a supernatural entity, namely God, was responsible, rather than saying it assembled itself by mindless chance. In any case, a human being would have to know everything to actually know there is no God. Having considered consciousness broadly, we can now look more specifically at the special senses and how they impact on our consciousness. The first sense I will examine in this lecture will be hearing, since it is the sense that can now be rectified by interfacing sound to human consciousness using a bionic ear.
the lessons we have learned in the development of the bionic ear could be applied to the restoration of other senses, such as vision and touch. Firstly, we would do well to reflect on the amazing gifts of hearing and speech. Hearing depends on both the sense organ in the inner ear, the organ of corti, and neural processing in the brain. The ear itself is quite remarkable, and the range of sound intensities that it can comfortably detect is one trillion to one. The softest sound that we can hear moves the eardrum one billionth of one millimetre, or one twentieth the size of a water molecule. Sound is directed down the ear canal to the eardrum, and then via the tiny middle ear bones, the smallest bones in the body, to the inner ear, which houses the sensory organ of hearing. This organ rests on a membrane that vibrates selectively to different sound frequencies, and so acts as a sound filter, which sorts sound frequencies into groups. High frequencies produce maximal vibrations at the beginning of the coiled inner ear, and low frequencies do the same at the other end. Sound may also reach the inner ear by roots other than the middle ear. If a sound is loud enough, the whole skull vibrates, and the vibrations produce direct stimulation of the inner ear. Furthermore, deaf children in particular can pick up low-frequency vibrations with their hands and feet, and this is useful for teaching them the rhythm of speech. Elephants are even better. Scientists have discovered that African elephants' feet are so sensitive they can detect vibrations in the ground and tell whether alarm calls coming at some distance are from a familiar or unfamiliar herd. The organ of hearing in your inner ear acts in a similar way to how a pick-up needle on a record player converts vibrations from the record into electrical voltages. The hairs on the inner ear cells move to and fro in a gelatinous material to produce the electrical voltages. These voltages initiate patterns of auditory nerve responses that are transmitted to the brain where they are interpreted as speech and other sounds. Your brain uses two codes to interpret the frequency or pitch of sound, one based on the timing of brain cell responses and the other on where the brain is stimulated. According to the timing code, we recognise the pitch of a sound when a group of brain cells fire in time with the sound waves. According to the place code, the auditory brain centres are organised spatially like a piano keyboard. If one area is stimulated, then a low pitch will be perceived, and a more distant area will produce a high pitch. But neuroscientists still have very little understanding of how the brain converts the patterns of electrical responses with the timing and place codes into the rich tapestry of sound we experience in our consciousness. To discover how this happens is the holy grail of neuroscience. Another exciting challenge in the neuroscience of hearing is to understand the remarkable way the brain can process the complex signals of speech. Not only do we recognise the content of speech, 
but the identity of the speaker and even their emotional state. And the performance is better than any computer recognition system yet designed. The brain does the processing at great speed. You may not realise that when listening to me speak, your brain is processing from three to seven syllables every second. As a vocal species, our speech is crucial to communication. Indeed, it is not too much of an exaggeration to say that our ability to communicate complex ideas makes us unique in the animal kingdom. There is much more that could be said about the extraordinary and complex nature of the auditory system, including how we localise sounds in space and hear in the presence of noise. But let us now turn to vision, another remarkable sense. In some ways, there are similarities with hearing, but there are many differences as well. For vision to occur, light passes through the pupil to the back of the eye, where the receptor cells in the retina convert it into electrical signals. This is done by a chemical process, rather than the mechanical one that occurs in the inner ear. Think of the retina as the film in the back of a camera. The electrical responses from the cells and nerves in the retina are then transmitted to the visual cortex. Vision needs many points of stimulation from the retina to the visual cortex to represent the smallest elements of a scene. For that reason, there are approximately a million nerve fibres in the optic nerve and a hundred million cells in the visual cortex. The visual cortex is a folded sheet of brain cells covering an area of 10 square centimetres, or the size of a saucer. What is amazing is that our central vision, involving about a half a million separate areas of light, is processed by a small region of the retina called the macula. It is about 3 millimetres in diameter. There's an even smaller area in the macula for reading. Consider, too, that the retina is only half a millimetre thick and it has two layers of nerve cells and fibres that process movement and shape. The eye can respond to a range of intensities from 1 to 10 billion compared to the 1 to 1 trillion for hearing. The range is covered by two types of receptors, rods for night vision and cones for day. The cells in the human eye respond rapidly to movement, otherwise playing cricket and tennis would be out of the question. The cones in many species have pigments which are tuned for colour vision and become adapted to the particular environment. The pigments that give a falcon its magnificent vision are tuned to ultraviolet light. With this receptor, even while soaring high in the sky, a falcon can identify the urine trails of its prey, which fluoresce in sunlight. Furthermore, just as two ears help localise sound, so two eyes help localise objects in space. The brain pathways for vision process the visual patterns transmitted from the retina. The cells in the retina respond to the horizontal or vertical edges of an object and also to movement in specific directions. These responses 
two small segments of the scene in front of us are assembled in the cortex to form the overall image. This may be due to the fact that in the brain there are groups of brain cells that fire in time with each other at an overall frequency of 40 Hz. Thus the stimuli are bound together. But just how we come to the conscious experience, however, is still not clear. After hearing and vision, the next key senses for exploring the world are touch and those sensing position and movement. I will not discuss the senses of taste and smell, nor the visceral senses which record discomfort such as colic inside the body. Touch results when pressure stimulates receptors in the skin. Their signals pass to the higher centres in the brain via peripheral nerves, and then the spinal cord. The spinal cord also receives the input from receptors in muscles and joints that measure how much they are stretched. So the spinal cord is the highway along which the sensory information from the body passes up to the brain. It is also the highway for muscle commands that pass downwards. At all levels, the sensory and motor stimuli interact and can influence each other often without your knowing about it or being able to control it. For example, when you step forward with, say, your left leg, the muscles in the right leg are kept rigid so that you don't overbalance. Furthermore, if you touch a hot stove, you immediately withdraw your hand before having time to decide whether that is a good idea. The thumb is an outstanding example of the integration of the senses, because of its great importance, it takes up a large area of the body map in the cortex of the brain. Its skin is so sensitive that it is possible to distinguish two points separated by only two millimetres. To give it such fine control, the muscles that bend the thumb have more receptors than any other muscles in the body. So unique is the thumb it was reported that during the communist and atheistic era in Russia, two sculptors were in such awe that they set up an altar and worshipped the god of the thumb. As the spinal cord has such important functions, an injury can lead to a devastating loss of the sense of touch and movement, as well as bladder, bowel and sexual function. Research is in progress to restore spinal cord function using bionics, and this I will discuss in a later lecture. After discussing just a few of the wonders of hearing, vision, touch and movement, I hope you can appreciate how magnificent and important these senses are. We depend entirely on receiving information from all our senses to experience and learn about the world around us. In the next lecture, I would like to discuss what happens if the senses fail or do not develop. Professor Graham Clark with the first of his Boyer Lectures. You've been listening to another ABC Radio National podcast. ABC Radio National, on air and online, with many of our programs available as podcasts or MP3 downloads. All the details at abc.net.au slash rn slash podcast.